Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on the East Coast and Central Standard Time. This is uh, Kennard Brown. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is April 3rd, 2010, and don't let me forget those on the West Coast and on Mountain Time. Now, I forgot to mention how we do celebrate Passover today. Uh, Perhaps some of you are wondering, well, we can't sacrifice a lamb today. You're you're correct. Based on what Deuteronomy 16 says, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting in verses uh, 5 to 6. It states that thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, which is right now in my townhouse. I can't um, sacrifice a lamb. I I would be disobeying the law here, the Torah, what it says here. Says, thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover or the Passover lamb within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Verse six. But at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place His name in, and right now that place is in Jerusalem. There thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at evening, which is on the the fourteenth at evening, at the going down of the sun. So at, at the time when you see the going down of the sun. That's when you sacrifice it and you begin eating it. At the season that thou camest, or at the time that thou camest forth out of Egypt. Verse 7, And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, and you shall turn in the morning and go into thy tents. All right, so that's the definition of that. Now, again, just want to underscore, we are forbidden to sacrifice a lamb today, so we can't go out and kill a lamb and sacrifice it, uh, because there's no temple. Now, also, I want to describe exactly what's on the menu based on what God told us in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 7 to 9, and he says, And they shall take of the blood, that's the blood of the lamb, and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorposts of the house where they shall eat it. Verse 8, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, which we're going to get into today, what, what is unleavened bread? And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head and with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And that word means entrails. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which have remained of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And in verse 11, you shall eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in the haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So the Passover is a day, of course, that reflects the liberation of Israel or anyone else from sin, from the oppression of, of slavery, and, and of course, of sin. It also represents, for those who do understand, that the Passover lamb represents the Messiah, uh, Yeshua Messiah. It also represents Yeshua Messiah protecting you through his shed blood from eternal damnation, which is, of course, not being able to live eternally. So that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. And it's, of course, it's about judgment, too, for those who don't want to accept that Yeshua Messiah is uh, your Lord and Savior, the one that will 
help you to overcome sin and, and gain eternal life, then you will be eternally damned uh, because this is also um, a feast that has a sense of judgment to it as well. All right. Now, let's go over again. Uh, the scriptures do prove that the Passover lamb really represented Yeshua Messiah and represents Yeshua Messiah. Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 29. It states, The next day John, uh, Yochanan, seeing Yeshua coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And, of course, one of the most famous scriptures ever quoted <laughs> in the um, New Testament, uh, John chapter 3. But they don't quote the rest. They quote John 3, verse 16, but they don't quote the rest. John 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And perish means perish. You won't live again. And you have people preaching today that God is going to allow you to live forever uh, in pain. And that can be easily proven in the Bible uh, that that's not the case. Uh, you look at Revelation chapter 21, God the Father promises that there will be no more pain when he comes on the earth after the millennium. So obviously perish means perish in the scripture. Verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what the Passover really ultimately pictures, ladies and gentlemen. It pictures salvation. Verse 18, universal salvation. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light that not his deeds should be uh, revealed or yeah, exposed. That's what that means. Not reproved, but it means exposed. Verse 21, But he that does truth, and what's truth? Psalm 119, verse 142, Truth is the Torah, the teachings of God, the law of God. He that doeth the truth or does the law of God comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Okay, so that, that's very important to understand that as well. And in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, John chapter 6, starting at verse 51, it states, Yeshua stated, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh. So here he's interpreting what the bread or the matzo should symbolize his flesh, which the lamb represents as well. Uh which I will give for the life of the world. So if he's the Lamb of God, then obviously his flesh must represent the Passover lamb or the, or the flesh as well. And, of course, the the bread and the lamb together represent him. And also the wine. It's all about him. The wine represents his blood, as he, as he stated. Uh, the matzo represents his broken body. And the lamb represents him, as far as him being sacrificed and suffering. So all of it represents him. And in verse 52, of course, since the Jews, and even today, they don't understand this, a lot of them, therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give up of his flesh to eat? So they were suggesting that he was talking about uh, cannibal, uh, cannibalism, and he wasn't. Verse 53, then Jesus said unto them, very verily I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. What he was doing, basically, is helping them understand what the real meaning of the lamb, the matzos, and the wine really represented. That's what he was trying to do. Verse 54, Who, Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed. Okay? Um, food indeed. That's what that word means. And my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. So he, he basically added more understanding to the Passover observance, that the fact that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that the matzo 
uh, represents the bread or the manna that came down from heaven that on a physical plane was represented through Moses and that sustained them. Well, by eating the matzo during the Passover, the matzo is the unleavened bread that I'm going to get into here in a minute, uh, that symbolizes Christ's broken body. Of course, the lamb also is symbolic of him as well. And the wine is symbolic of his blood. Altogether, it represents him. So I just wanted to, to point that out. And in numbers, uh, for those uh, Jews who are listening to me that don't understand that uh, a human being can also atone for another human being, uh, as numbers, I'm just going to use this as an example because this is an example of the high priest. Back in Numbers chapter 35, Numbers chapter 35, beginning in verse 28, states right here, uh, to get the context here, it says in verse 27 of Numbers, And the revenger of blood find him within the borders of the city of the refuse, and the revenger of blood killed the slayer, he shall not be guilty of his blood. Verse 28, Because he should have remained in the city of, of his refuge until the death of the high priest. So this is a high priest who Yeshua represents in, in, in the line of Melchizedek. But after the death of the high priest, the slayer shall return into the land of his possession. So here you have the, uh, the death of the high priest atones for the individual that accidentally kills somebody here in this context. So that's, an, that's some further proof from the Tanakh, or even better yet, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which Numbers is a part of, that a human being's death can atone for uh, another human being, allow them to live, all right? And that's what Christ did. His death atoned for everyone's lives because he was perfect. He was the perfect uh, lamb, sac sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 3. Well, let me start in verse 1. It says, For the, law, the Torah, having a shadow of good things, or a image, a model of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers unto perfect. And then what perfect means is being able to never to sin, and also being changed into spirit. So those sacrifices, that, that was not the purpose of those sacrifices, and still it is not the purpose of the sacrifices uh, because it's on the physical plane to make you perfect. Take it cannot make you perfect. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. So when you sacrifice a lamb or a bull, even if you do that today, it's not going to take away your sins in, in your mind. You need help. You need another uh, help which through the Holy Spirit, will be able to purge all the wickedness from your mind. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And that's what the sacrifice did, help you remember your sins, to, to, to do the best you can to, to get rid of them. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of goats, blood, the, the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Verse 5, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body thou hast prepared for me, and burnt on that body was Yeshua, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. And the reason why God didn't have any pleasure is because most of them did not have the right attitude. As Psalm 51 states, you have to have the right attitude of wanting to stop sinning, and then God would be pleased with the physical sacrifices. Verse 7, And then said, I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, God, above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure then, wherein are offered by the Torah. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, and he's talking about the first agreement, not the law, that he may establish the second. Verse 10, By the which we will have sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once, and every priest stand of daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, or what the sacrifices did, it... it cleansed you on a physical plane, your, your body, your flesh, but it did not do, nor could it, cleanse your mind from sinning. 
verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice of sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified or set apart, whereof of the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make, or agreement that I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws, and the laws weren't changed, they were just put spiritually into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them, this is through the Holy Spirit, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, there, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So the offerings that will be done in the future is not going to be for sin. It's just to, to cleanse the body on a physical plane. That's what the sacrifices are for. But it's not going to cleanse your mind. It's not going to do that. Only through the sacrifice of Christ, which allowed the Holy Spirit to be given on a universal basis, will that happen. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, let me explain what this is. If you don't understand the temple and, and what it's about, you won't understand this. The temple consists of two components. The Holy of Holies, where it has the, the mercy seat, and it has um, the Ark of the Covenant. That represents where God dwells. And then you have another compartment beyond the veil, which is the holy place. That's where the, 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 the Levitical priests did all of their work to prepare for sacrifices. All right, so when it talks about the holiest, Christ was able to, through his sacrifice, enter into the presence of God and atone for all the sins of mankind, all the past sins of mankind. Verse 20, By a new and living way which he had consecrated for us through the veil, as I just said, that is to say his flesh. Now the veil does represent his flesh. So through his flesh, he was able to atone for all the sins of mankind. All the sins of mankind prevented mankind from becoming immortal. But through his sacrifice, now mankind can become immortal. Verse 21, And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's what needs to be done here through the sacrifice of Christ. Our minds need to be sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful in promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord. The tribulation, verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So that's the reason why we need to take this seriously here, the sacrifice of Christ. And we need to, to understand that it was a great sacrifice and he didn't have to do it in the first place. He did it because he loved mankind and he wanted to make sure that mankind had an opportunity for eternal life. All right, so that, that's the thing that you need to understand. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, to help you to understand the purpose of the sacrifices, again, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience of the mind. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtain eternal redemption for us. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. As I just said, it just purifies the flesh so you can be in the presence of God. Verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, to purge your conscience from dead works and serve the living God? Through Christ's sacrifice, we will be able to be in God's presence and on a spiritual plane. The Holy of Holy represents immortality the holy place represents the earth mortality that's what the 
the the temple, the dichotomy of the temple. When you have the holy place, it represents uh, the earth, the physical plane, the physical universe. The holy of holies, which is God's universe, it represents spirituality, immortality, eternity. And that's the goal that the holy place, the sacrifices, lead to. And if you turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. It says um, in verse 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, continue, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifice sacrifices God is well pleased. Communicate means it's to share. And then over in Revelation, we see various sacrifices being done. Revelation chapter... Here we go. Uh, Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before, having every one of them harps and golden vows full of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. So there, there are prayers of the saints being offered to God. And let me see if I can find another scripture here in reference to this here. Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8, just have certain scriptures pop in my mind. All right, in Revelation 8 verse 1, when he had opened the, the seven, so there was silence in the heaven for about the space of half an hour, and I saw the seven angels were stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. When you stand before God, you're standing inside his temple, because he's in his temple, that's his home. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of angels, out of the angels' hands. So our prayers are like sweet-smelling incense to him. It's like a sacrifice. And it goes up to him. And, of course, in Hebrews chapter 13 again, Hebrews chapter 13, states that uh, by him let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's prayer. So prayer is like a sacrifice to him. And verse 16, but to do good and to share, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So on a spiritual plane, prayers, giving, sharing, that's, that's on a spiritual plane, sacrifice to him, which is represented by actually physically also giving to God and to mankind on a physical plane but it points to the spiritual so i just wanted to, to point that out to you okay and there's nothing wrong with having a lamb as long as you understand it it does not represent a lamb that is sacrificed at the temple the lamb is symbolic of messiah as the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world all right so i just covered that and on how we do Celebrate the Passover. Uh, one last thing I didn't cover is what's on the, the what do they do traditionally today 
and Jewish homes and, and also Messianic Jewish homes or, or Gentiles who decide to keep the law. I'm just going to go over a few things. Uh, the Haggadah is called the telling. It's so named from the Lord's command to tell your son in Exodus 13, verse 8. It is a book which relates the Passover story through readings, songs, and prayers in a traditional pre uh, prescribed order. So that's what you would do. Um, we did this, um, what was the date, April 1st. Uh, actually, uh, March 31st at evening, uh, right before the sunset, we started to, to actually talk about the Passover story. And what we did, we did what Christ did, because that was a, a type of Passover meal that Christ had with his disciples. In John chapter 13, it stated that after they got through eating, uh, they had uh, washed each other's feet. And that You can do that really after the meal as well, or you can do it before the meal. Um, but we are supposed to follow the example, so <laughs> we should do it after the meal. All right, so we should do it after the meal like he did. Uh, we should go ahead and wash each other's feet. So that that's the way you do that. And the harasset is a sweet mixture of finely chopped apple, nuts, cinnamon, and wine made to resemble the red-brown clay and mortar used by Israel making the bricks of Pharaoh's pyramids. Its sweetness is a reminder of the sweetness of God's redemption from slavery. So that's another uh, item that we uh, actually had. I didn't put cinnamon in it, though, but I put apples and nuts and a little wine. And then you have the Seder tray. It's a tray or platter which usually has six circular indentations, indentations rather, so that the symbolic Passover foods may be individually displayed. It's a central item on a, on a modern Passover meal. We did have candles. Candles are lit at sunset in a prayer pronounced over them by the mother of the house to begin the Passover service. Uh, the candles with their bright, warm glow symbolize the solemnity of the occasion and set Passover part as a special day. And then you, um, you should have three matzahs, unleavened bread, are placed on a, a Passover table with one in each pocket of the embroidered uh, matzah, if you can afford to have an embroidered matzah, linen bag. Some rabbinic authorities suggest that the three matzahs represent the, the uh, three groups of the Jewish people, the priests and Levites and, and the Israelites. However, there is no biblical basis for this explanation, which is true. And then Elijah. Elijah has a lot to do with this. I quote Elijah at the end of my program. And this is interesting that Elijah, that God inspired Elijah to be a part of this Passover uh, celebration. Now, keep in mind, Passover should... The whole Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread should provoke you to good works. And Elijah's message is about that. It's about provoking you to good works, uh, helping you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Elijah's cup is the extra cup of wine poured in the hope that the prophet Elijah might come and announce the arrival of the Messiah. Rabbinic tradition holds that the Messiah will come during Passover, and he may. The season of redemption to bring about the final redemption from dispersion. However, according to Malachi 4, verse 5, Elijah must appear first. And then you have carpets, usually parsley, bitter, parsley rather, bitter, and we had that. Lettuce or watercress is considered a bitter herb. Its green color is a reminder of the springtime during which Passover occurs, and also the hyssop plant used to apply the blood to the doorpost. The mar, which is bitter herbs, usually ground horseradish, and we had that, is a mandatory item for Passover. It is a reminder of the bitterness which the Israelites suffered as slaves in Egypt. And then uh, some Jews have the shank bone. I think some Jews actually eat the, the Passover lamb, too, with the understanding that it's not a sacrificed lamb. But anyway, the shank bone of a lamb is a stark reminder of the Passover lamb sacrifice each year in the days of the temple. The sacrificial system, a sacrificial system, rather, ceased with the Roman destruction in the temple in A.D. 70. And then they have uh, the hazaret, which is a whole bitter herb such as horseradish, uh, horse radish, radish, or onion. It is an addition to the mar since the biblical command in Numbers 9-11 is to eat the meal with bitter herbs. Okay, And then you have a pillow. You're supposed to have a pillow. It's placed near the left arm of the leader on which to, to recline during the Seder. The, the Seder means the Passover meal. The custom of reclining while eating is of the ancient Persian origin. It symbolizes freedom since slaves were never permitted to recline in leisure at a meal. Then salt water symbolizes the Jewish tears shed during Egypt, the Egyptian bondage and God's miraculous parting of the Red Sea. What we did, we dipped the uh, parsley into the salt water. And then we ate it in the symbolic, of course, of the tears. And, of course, 
it does represent the suffering of Christ and the tearing, obviously, that he had, obviously went through as he was getting beat as well. So, all right, so that is the uh, the Seder table, the Passover meal ta- table that I didn't go over last week. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, when you understand, symbolic of the burial of the Messiah. And next week I'm going to talk about what is celebrated tomorrow. It's called Easter, but really it's called, it is the first fruits, And it represents the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. And I'm going to get into when he was resurrected. Uh, when you understand biblically, he was resurrected on right before the sunset on Saturday evening on, on Shabbat. That's when he was resurrected. And um, I'm going to go over the, the great error that people have today among Christianity um, and so forth about Good Friday and so forth, and that he was exactly in the grave three days and three nights as he stated. And then he was resurrected right before the day began, which was Saturday evening or Shabbat during that time in the first century. Okay, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is symbolic of the burial of the Messiah. All right? And I'm going to read a little bit from this book. It's called The Feast of the Lord. It's by Kevin Howard and Marvin Rosenthal. It's an excellent book. It's called God's Prophetic Calendar from Calvary to the Kingdom. It says, Israel's second feast is named after the bread which is required to be eaten during the holiday. The Hebrew scriptures call this feast Hag HaMatzot. Matzah and the plural Matzot are the Hebrew words for unleavened bread. Therefore, this holiday is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is on page 65. An understanding of this practical truth taught by this important feast is absolutely vital for godly living today. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder of God's miraculous deliverance from Egyptian bondage. For when Israel fled from Egypt in the middle of the night, there was no time for, for bread dough to rise. So the Lord commanded, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. With it, that is, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. This is in Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, and Exodus 12, verse 39. And if you, uh, if I'm going a little bit too fast for you, you can always play this back. That's a beautiful thing I like about Blog Talk Radio. And you can write the scriptures down and study them for you on your own. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is observed in the early spring. Right now, we are in the process of observing the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The first day of Unleavened Bread was Thursday. The second was Friday, and today is the third day of Unleavened Bread. It, and we're going by the Karite calendar, which is by New Moon Observation, which I'll get into um, perhaps at the end of this. I'll do a, a, a probably maybe a two-hour Bible study on the calendar issues. And, and I, I just got to listen to this one individual. I'm not going to give his name, but he feels that you shouldn't try to keep the New Moon calendar because you don't have the authority and, and, of course, I guess he forgets scriptures like uh, Exodus 23. Let me turn there where it states that you should not follow a multitude into sin. It says, uh, yeah, Exodus 23, verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shall evil is when you don't go do do something that God commands us to do. Neither shall thou speak in the cause of decline after many to rest judgment. Many of these people uh, that try to claim that you should not keep the biblical calendar by observing the new moons, uh, they try to say, well, God only gave Moses that authority. Yet Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, if you, and I'm going to go over this in a, in a detailed Bible study on this, and I suggest also that you uh, go to Michael Rood, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-R-O-O-D, Michael Rood's website, or you can type on, on uh, YouTube, uh, the true biblical calendar, Michael Rue, and you, you should be able to get absolutely free uh, videos on an exhaustive study that will prove to you that they are the closest to keeping the biblical calendar as Moses did in uh, Old Testament times. Anyway, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe. This word observe means it's, it's to take note of. The month. Month, almost in every translation or in every translation in the Old Testament, means new moon. So it means to guard, observe the new moon of Abit. Now this is a commandment that Moses is telling the people here, verse 1. So he's telling the people of Israel to take note of, to observe the new moon of Abit, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. So 
keeping the, the, the calendar based on new moon observation is very important, ladies and gentlemen. And don't let anyone fool you otherwise. This scripture proves that he commanded all of Israel, not just himself, to do this. Okay, so just want to point that out. Now, back to this book. And then another scripture, too, is in Acts, when the apostles were brought before. Let me see if I can find it, because that's very important here. I think it's in Acts. Acts chapter 4. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 4. All right, let me type in the word obey and I should be able to find this. There we go. Acts chapter 5. Not Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And this, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were preaching about Yeshua. Now, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> everyone that professes that they believe in Yeshua Messiah uh, would not stop preaching about Yeshua Messiah if the Jewish Sanhedrin today existed and told you to stop doing it, right? Well, in Acts chapter 5, that's what they tried to do here. In verse 20, it says, saying, did... In verse 26, uh-oh, look at the context. Acts 5, verse 26. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people that not they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they had set them before the council of the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. Talking about Yeshua. Verse 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Okay? So there are cases where you even have to go against the high priest or the, or the Sanhedrin. And I don't never hear this preached when people say, well, hey, they don't have the authority. Yes, we do. We do have the authority based on not only the Old Testament, New Testament example, but also the Old Testament in Exodus 23, verse 2, when it says, do not follow a multitude in the sin. All right? Including your leaders. You don't follow your leaders in the sin. If they tell you to do something wrong, you're going to do it. If they tell you to go blow somebody's brains out, will you do it? No. Uh, the, the the majority don't rule if the majority is not doing the right thing. Exodus 23, verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. That is pretty plain, ladies and gentlemen. That's in the Torah. All right. So there's enough of this foolishness about who has authority and who doesn't. If the person that, if the person does not, the person is having authority, I mean, let's give it an example. The devil has great authority. <laughs> Now, are we going to follow the devil because he has authority? Is God allowing him to rule this world? Of course not. So let's let's get out of this deception here, okay? Anyway, um, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Festival of Unleavened Bread. Okay, let's get back to this. All right, so... On page 65 here, it states here that the, fe the Feast of Unleavened Bread is observed in the early spring. It begins on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan and lasts for seven days. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven-day holiday, begins the day after Passover, a one-day holiday. Often the two holidays are blurred together and collectively referred to as the eight days of Passover. In the days of the Second Temple in Jesus' time, it was also common to call all eight days the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And that's exactly right. That's why people don't understand certain things uh, about what Christ said. They don't understand that Passover really referred to, mostly when they, when they say Passover, referred to the eight days of the festival. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a prominent biblical feast, unlike the other feasts which were instituted in Leviticus chapter 23. The commandment instituting this feast was given prior to the Exodus from Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 14 to 20. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were instituted first. The details for the other feasts came later. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was also the first of the three annual pilgrim fest during the three of the seven annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Weeks, and Tabernacles. All Jewish men were required to present themselves 
before the Lord at the temple. This is found in Exodus 23, verses 14 and 17, Exodus 34, 18 and 23, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, and Second Chronicles 8, verse 13. Now, in keeping this commandment, the Messiah journeyed to Jerusalem for each pilgrim fest. After one such pilgrimage for the Feast of Unleavened Bread at age 12, the Messiah had a fascinating encounter. It is recorded that when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. What feast? The Festival of Unleavened Bread. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, experts in the scriptures, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. This is in Luke chapter 2, verses 42 to 43 and 46 to 47. The Messiah utterly amazed Israel's finest Torah scholars. He was a lowly Galilean, Galilean rather. He had no uni university training, and he was only 12 years old, not even of bar mitzvah, which is the graduation into being responsible for, to keep the Torah according to Jewish tradition, age 13. Yet his understanding and comprehension of Scripture were staggering. Never before had they met one like this. The, and this is on page 66. The biblical record gives only three instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Special sacrifices were to be offered in the temple each day of the feast. That's Leviticus 23, verse 8, and Numbers 28, verse 19 to 24. The first and seventh days of the feast were Sabbaths with prohibitions on all work. Exodus 12, verse 16, Leviticus 23, verse 7 to 8, Numbers 28, verse 25, and Deuteronomy 16, verse 8. And leaven was strictly forbidden. No less than six passages emphasize the prohibition of leaven during this feast. In Hebrew, leaven is known as hamatz, which means sour. Leaven, usually yeast or baking powder, is used to produce fermentation, especially in bread dough. As leaven sours the dough, tiny gas bubbles are produced, which cause the dough to rise. Not only is the eating of leaven, food such as the bread and rolls, forbidden during the feast, but even the presence of leaven within one house is unlawful. The Lord commanded Moses, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel, Exodus 12, verse 15. This obedience to the divine command carries severe consequences indeed. And again, it was commanded, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters, Exodus 13, verse 7. The extent of the restriction was further emphasized. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Deuteronomy 16, verse 4. The clarity of God's command allows no room for debate. Any leaven, no matter how small the amount or how discreet is present, is not permitted during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's not enough to simply refrain from eating leaven or from touching leaven or even looking at leaven by storing it away in a hidden place. All leaven must be purged out. Failure to do so is a serious breach of biblical law. Okay? So when we talk about the fulfillment of this in page 68 of this book, uh, it says, Sin is often pictured as leaven. I will go over some of those scriptures here in a minute. The ancient rabbis also believed that leaven represents the evil impulse of the heart. That's Barakot 17a, that's in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish uh, book of interpretation of uh, the uh, Tanakh, or the Torah. Leaven is well suited as a picture of sin since it rapidly permeates the dough, contaminating it, souring it, fermenting it, and swelling it to many times its original size without changing its weight. In fact, this souring process, souring process, the first stage of decay, is operative solely because of the curse of death decreed by God when Adam sinned. Since leaven pictures sin, only unleavened bread, matzah, was used in the temple. This is, this is found in Leviticus 2, verse 11, 6, verses 16 to 17, and 10 verses 12. Offerings had to be pure, and anything leavened was deemed impure and unfit. As with the other feasts of the Lord in Leviticus 23, the prophetic meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is found in the work of the Messiah. Passover pictures the substitutionary death of the Messiah as the Passover lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures the burial of the Messiah, and First Ruth pictures the resurrection of the Messiah, which we'll go into detail next week. The Hebrew prophets foretold a day when the Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. He would be the lamb offered up by God as a once-for-all sacrifice. The prophet declared to the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all when you make his soul an offering for sin. But the Hebrew prophets also spoke of Messiah's amazing burial, 
Isaiah prophesied a name made appointed his grave with the wicked, but was instead with the rich, one at his death, because he had done no violence, wickedness, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's in Isaiah 53, verse 9. Normally, one who dies a, a criminal's death receives a criminal's burial, but this was not the case with the Messiah, of course. All right. So we understand the application there, and I'm going to go over a few scriptures here. All right, so in, in Matthew, Mark chapter 8, this I also understand what leaven can represent. Leaven can be positive, too, but during the Passover season, it definitely represents sin. I do, we do have some people that are a little confused by what the Scripture is stating, stating that leaven is, oh, it's, it's totally the opposite, is it's, uh, yeast, and you can, and that's not, obviously, when you look at all the Scriptures, that's not what leaven represents during the Passover season, ladies and gentlemen. Don't let anyone deceive you otherwise. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 15. It says, and he, and he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So there's something wrong with um, the, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees, and, of course, Herod, which was the high priest at that time. And then um, Mark 13, verse 33. Oh, he was the ruler. He was the king of Israel at that time. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 33. It says, Take ye heed, watch and pray. Oops. Mark chapter 13, verse uh, is it 33. Whoa. Okay, maybe it's, uh, let me go back here. Type in here. Hate when I do this. Eleven. Let me be. Mark chapter eight. Maybe eleven. Yeah, Matthew thirteen. So in Matthew thirteen, verse thirty-three, this is a positive rendition of. Leaven. It says another parable spake unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which which a woman took and hid in three measures of meat to the whole was leaven. So this is leaven in a positive sense. It's not. I'm quoting this here because leaven is not always negative. But you have to look at the context. You can't assume that all oh, because this one scripture says that leaven is uh, is okay. That means during the Passover is okay. You can't assume that. That's an illogical assumption. You have to look at the um, context of scripture to understand in the context of what leaven is referring to. And then Matthew uh, chapter 16, let me make a correction here. Okay, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. starting in verse 11 to 12. It says, uh, How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So so this is, if you look at the context of this, this was uh, when he had uh, done the miracle of changing, uh, providing bread, and then they were picking up uh, the remainder, and he said, Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I know some groups teach that uh, the Sadducees were all wrong and they were in error all the time. Well, he also included the Pharisees along with that. So it's not just the Sadducees uh, that were in error. The Pharisees also were in error of biblical interpretation, some of them. Okay, not all of them, but some of them. Okay, in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now he goes in a little detail and tells you what he's talking about here, about what the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is. In the meantime, when there were gathered together in a number of a multitude, in Luke 12, verse 1, a people, insomuch that they trolled one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse 2, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. 
It says, therefore, whatever you have spoken in darkness be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in the closet shall be proclaimed in the housetops. Okay, so you need to understand something. If you're going to act like you're worshiping God and so forth, you need to be doing it at all times, even when people aren't looking at you. A hypocrite is someone who tells someone that they're doing something, that you should not do something, and yet they're doing it. So that is something that you need to, if you do have that problem, during this Passover season, during the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, as you eat the unleavened bread, which is symbolic of getting sin out of your lives, you need to also get uh, hypocrisy out of your lives as well, which is um, faking it, faking obedience to God. You, you don't want to fake obedience to God. God hates that. That's, that's leavening to him in the, in, the, in the context of the festival. All right, uh, I'm looking up the word here in the word study Bible or commentary. It says the noun hypocrisis, that's uh, in Greek, was generally used for flattery or evil deception. Hypocrisy is a thing God cannot tolerate. So that's what hypocrisy can mean. It can mean evil deception, and which he is continually exposing. Idolatry is a form of hypocrisy which keeps a man from being perfect, wholehearted with the Lord, his God. Okay, and uh, it's, it's a serious problem, and God wants you to eliminate that leavening during the festival of unleavened bread. Okay, and then First Corinthians chapter five. First Corinthians chapter five, starting in verse six. says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or a little sin leavens the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover, again, proof that Christ was the Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, which proves that what leaven in the context of the festival and the Passover meal is sin. It represents sinning. The leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So unleavened bread represents sincerity and truth. Okay? And it's in verse 9. He says, I wrote unto you in epistle not to company with fornicators. These are people that have sex before marriage, to do all sorts of other sexual sins along the lines of homosexuality, bestiality, uh, whatever, abominations. Verse 10, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one no, not he. This, these are people that know the truth of God, and they still disobey. Those are the people you have to stay away from. And, of course, you stay away from people who are not of God that are covetous. But you have to you have to work with these people, and you go work with them. You have to, yeah, he's saying that you can't totally just lock yourself in a closet. But when you see them sinning, you get away from them. Okay, that's that's the point. So, anyway. Uh, that describes the, the, the purpose of uh, the festivals of unleavened bread. It symbolizes uh, Christ's burial. He was uh, perfect. He is the unleavened bread that was buried. And we will get into um, the Feast of First Fruits next week. In particular, we're going to go over when he was resurrected, so that's very important. He was not resurrected on Sunday. I know a lot of people think that, but he wasn't. You have to look at the scriptures. And uh, he was not resurrected Sunday morning. And I'm going to prove that to you next week. And I'm going to explain to you what the, the, the real joyful meaning of first fruits really is. And then we're going to get into a little bit of, of the calendar issues as well, because is, there is a big, big, big dispute among the Karaites today and other people and Orthodox Jews with the timing of the um, the count of the Omer. And I'm going to get into that next week as well, what that is. But uh, I wanted to uh, close here with examining how we can overcome sin. 
and and what we need to do to overcome sin because this is what these days picture here. So I'm going to do that here in a minute. Okay, in Romans chapter 6, let's study that. Romans chapter 6, because once you receive the Holy Spirit, you're no longer under under sin. And, and many people today, they, they kind of act like they are. It says, Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. It says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us were baptized or immersed into Yeshua Messiah, were immersed into his death. So if you were baptized, you were immersed in the water, and then you were baptized into Yeshua's death, which is symbolic, of course, of the Passover meal. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. That should be our attitude. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Now, this is a very important scripture for you to understand. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. So our resurrection is going to be similar to his. That's what that's saying. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's the picture of this festival. For, for sin not to reign in our mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13, Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that scripture? It says, For sin shall not have dominion or control over you. For you are not under the law, in other words, you're not under the curses of the law, but under favor. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? No. In other words, shall we sin because we have the help of the Holy Spirit to help us uh, overcome the curses of the law by helping us obey God? No, you should not. Verse 16, know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So you're going to be servants either of sin or into righteousness. Verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. That's the kind of freedom that God is preaching to us, freedom from sin. Not freedom to do whatever you want, but freedom from sin, which leads to death. Okay? So he's telling us here, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, in other words, some of them were, you know, they weren't mature enough to understand what he's talking about here. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For you, when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things wherein you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? But now being made free from sin, free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit into holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. Well, I'll speak to you about first fruits next week. May God bless and keep you, and may God protect you. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, 
saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 